I'm excited to share that the American Centrist podcast is now the most listened to political podcast in the U.S. And more importantly, we've been able to motivate thousands to be proactive part of the solution. Welcome to the American Centrist episode eight. We're, we try to look past the rhetoric and hyperbole of politics into what these people who claim to be there for us actually do. So let's start with my opening statement. It's total bullshit, an outright lie. But for just a second, you thought to yourself, wow, this podcast must be doing something great. Now, compound that with the conviction of a politician and the desire most of us have to see the best in someone who believes what we believe really lies on the voter to go find some facts. And I don't mean the things we agree are facts. I mean, actual facts. So to wrap up my opening statement, I really do hope we're motivating people to be part of a proactive solution. If you're one of those, let us know at Centrist Pod on Twitter and of course our website, theamericancentrist.com. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast provider of choice. With me, of course, are co-hosts Jeff Link and Dave Kochel. They're here to help peel back the curtain and take a deeper look into what's behind the headlines. How's it going, guys? It's going good, Lou. It's good, Lou. So I'm sure most of you know there's a bit of an impeachment hearing going on. And here's the thing I learned from following it thus far. You can't impeach somebody for being an for their personality not being quite presidential. So let's dispense with what President Trump tells us about himself and what the Democratic candidates tell us about him. Let's put a blind on the person and look at the results. About 103 executive orders, about 500 acts signed into law. Dave, do you want to kick this one off for us and, and let us know what's happening that has an actual effect? Well, there's a lot happening and there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of presidential, I mean, presidents get to take credit for things maybe that they haven't uh, exactly done. I think on, on the plus side uh, for Trump supporters, uh, you can point to uh, a, a pretty good, successful negotiation of the USMCA, which is basically a modernization of NAFTA, even though it hasn't been passed by Congress yet. Uh, Wall Street likes it. Uh, the business community likes likes it. Most Democrats are happy with the labor protections that are in it from Mexico. And so the administration, I think, did a very good job on that. And um, um, I think that's one of the things that is um, sort of being uh, sort of reinforcing the strong economy that we have. Um, you know, almost all of the economic indicators are positive right now. And the, and the Trump administration gets credit for that. So before you go too much further, USMCA, give us just a just a snippet so that those who aren't familiar with it understand how it works, what it's doing. Well, um, there are a number of provisions in the USMCA that that people probably would never uh, bother to do much research on or have heard much about, but modernizing the agreement to account for the digital economy, for example. Uh, there, there are a lot of provisions in there that will make it, uh, I think, easier for uh, our countries to do business uh, over the digital economy. There are protections in there for workers in Mexico. There is a, a collective bargaining provision that is strong. There are um, provisions in there that will uh, sort of uh, uh, help the U.S. auto industry. Um, and I think, you know, there are good protections for farmers. Uh, we, it, it's going to open the dairy market in Canada, for example, and the egg market in Canada. There's a lot of little stuff that I think overall adds up to, uh, to what's a pretty good 
update of NAFTA and one that I think will enjoy some bipartisan support. And it's one of the areas where I think, you know, the Trump administration deserves some credit for, uh, you know, for doing some of the things that will that will uh, bring Democrats uh, over to, to support it. And, you know, it's caught up a little bit in, in the impeachment politics right now, but the market still sees it as a as a positive, and it's one of the reasons why I think the economy continues to grow and that the, you know, the, that wall street, you know, is, is kind of rewarding the Trump administration for policies. So before we get on to some other wins by the administration, Jeff, USMCA, do you see this as a positive uh, move? And do you see this as something that the president can take credit for? Well, I, I think the, the broader question is, do you think NAFTA was positive? Because NAFTA started in 1994. Uh, what we have with USMCA is largely a name change. There isn't a lot different. Um, in NAFTA, we had steel and aluminum tariffs. Uh, we still have steel and aluminum tariffs in the USMCA. Uh, I mean, one of the big changes is that uh, NAFTA didn't sunset. Um, Trump ended NAFTA. Uh, by pulling out of it as as he promised to do in the campaign and, and USMCA uh, will have a sunset uh, I think after 16 years so you know it's there's some there's some rearranging of the deck chairs here but essentially if you like NAFTA you're gonna like USMCA so in short you don't think it's a big departure but it continues something that was essentially a positive? Well, this won't be a big surprise, but, uh, you know, Trump promised to blow up NAFTA and replace it with something totally different. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Okay. Uh, Dave, what else you got for uh, for some big wins on the administration that, that have got some effect? Well, I think from a conservative standpoint, the, the record on judges is, is uh, something that I think makes Republicans very happy. He has, he has uh, appointed and confirmed, uh, the Senate has confirmed more judges than, than, uh, you know, the previous administrations combined. Um, I think the, uh, the legislation that the president signed backing Hong Kong autonomy, uh, is, is very good. Um, and, and I think, you know, obviously, you know, total bipartisan support. I think only had one vote against it in the House. Um, and then I would also say this: this is something you know. You know I, I I have not been a supporter of the president on how he sort of you know the rhetoric that he uses on foreign policy. And we've talked about this in previous episodes. But the 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 effect that it's had, for example, on NATO, has been that I think NATO countries are spending something more something like more than forty billion. $48 billion more on their defense than they were uh, at the beginning of uh, the Trump administration. And that's a lot of what he says is bluster. A lot of it is uh, counterproductive to our alliances. But the net effect on NATO is that is that the countries have kind of been kind of bludgeoned into into actually living up to their commitments under the under the treaty, which is to spend, uh, you know, a greater percentage of their uh, uh gross domestic product on defense. So this is this is sort of going back to the when he was talking about how other NATO countries aren't paying their fair share. And just correct me if I'm wrong, other countries aren't paying their fair share and he's going to try and get them to to pay as much as percentage wise the US is paying 
correct as as part of the well, treaty. Is no, that, no, is no, that kind right. of where we're going? So, that's not correct. They're not they're not <laughs> meeting our level of expenditure. There there are targets set for each of those countries. Right, and they're not meeting the the commitment that they made. And so so tr when Trump talks about this, he use he 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 disfigures the language around it very you know there's there's no doubt it's rhetorically uh inaccurate the way he speaks about it because he says they're not they're not chipping in enough it's not really you know they everybody pays dues into nafta and 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 there's nobody delinquent on that score it's the it's the level of commitment to country's own defense that is um, at issue here and it has you know there has been a positive impact on that spending in a number of NATO countries and it's it's simply because I think the Trump uh, rhetoric has kind of you know bullied them into doing it and so um, so whether you like the language or don't like the language I personally don't because I think it's frayed our relationships and the level of trust isn't there that used to be there, but um, you, you have to give him credit for having actually moved the ball on the amount of resources being spent, you know, on in NATO's defense. So, 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 Jeff, two two questions here. Do do you think that the net effect uh, is is a positive having these other NATO countries contribute? But the follow up to that is, do you think the negative implications of the relationship counteract the additional funds coming in? Absolutely. Um, what what Trump's foreign policy has done, if we take a step back away from whether countries have increased their commitment to, to their own defense, which is which is essentially what what this whole NATO issue is about. What we've really done is pulled away from from uh, our allies. Uh, we have pulled away from our role as a protector of human rights and of civil rights around the globe. We've pulled away um, in Syria, literally, uh, within the last month or so. Um, it is a foreign policy of uh, retraction and retrenchment, uh, which is much different than, than what we've had in the last 50 or 60 years. And I think that has made our country less secure and less stable on a on a macro level. It's emboldened uh, the Russians and the North Koreans. Um, you know, Trump has basically said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna give a straight arm to all of our allies in Europe uh, that we've fought wars with. Uh, I'm gonna reach out to Kim Jong Un in North Korea, uh, and because of my uh, impressive personality and and ability to negotiate, I'm gonna get something done with this guy, who who appears to be completely irrational and only interested in self preservation." Um, his meetings with Kim Jong-un have produced nothing. Uh, it hasn't really slowed down any of their efforts uh, to expand the capabilities of their missiles and, and their nuclear program. So, uh, sure, we've, we've got allies uh, that are paying more for their own defense. I think it's less about Trump's uh, bullying them into spending more. It's more that they're concerned that the United States is not going to be there for them. So, Dave, I want to get your take on something. The the meetings with with North Korea, right? Jeff Jeff thinks they haven't really accomplished much. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I don't think uh, anything positive has come from them. It, it 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 feels like there may have been a pause at the very beginning, uh, but what we gave up uh, in terms of uh, you know giving stature 
and recognition and in international status to to Kim Jong Un, you know, was not worth it. Um, you know, they're they're never going to do what we want them to do. You know, he is hell bent on on you know becoming a nuclear power, and I think they're on their way. And I don't think this has done anything to you know to change that. And I, I do think it's a mis miscalculation on the president's part to think that he could somehow charm you know one of the you know the, the most rogue you know leaders in the world uh, into you know into accommodating us think think about this for a second lou uh, before trump was president the most notable american that met with kim jong un was dennis rodman now the president of the united states meets with this guy i mean it it's it's outrageous do you, do you think that the president meeting with him uh, helps embolden other leaders like the North Korean leader who, who are, are less comfortable with human rights uh, to a point where they, they start trying to, to be more outrageous to get on the world stage? Uh, no, well, I think it, it just sends a message to every leader around the world that you never know what, what Trump's going to do. Um, he, by the way, he said in the campaign that's what he wanted people to, to think about him, is that he'd be unpredictable. He thought uh, our past foreign policy and our past leaders were far too predictable. <laughs> it's it's kind of an important element to consistency in, in dealing with foreign nations and that they kind of know where you stand and where you're going to be in the future. But uh, he wanted to be unpredictable. And I think that emboldens uh, those that, that don't value predictability. So if you want chaos in the world, um, then then Trump is kind of your guy. And think about the people that want chaos. Putin wants chaos. Uh, Kim Jong-un wants chaos. Iraq wants chaos. I mean, there, there are a lot of bad actors that thrive on chaos. And, you know, having a president that, that would take a meeting with Kim Jong-un uh, just because he thinks it's something that Obama wouldn't do uh, is just kind of uh, short-sighted, to say the least. Dave, from the Republican side, is there a general consensus on whether or not those meetings had a benefit? Even if, even if you're not seeing a benefit, do his supporters see one? Oh, I think there's a, you know elements of Fox Nation that probably see it as a benefit. They see a president who's, you know, doing big bold things and trying to make something happen. I think most people who, you know, well, of course, the foreign policy establishment doesn't see any benefit to it, and I think most members of Congress kind of roll their eyes at it. And remember that you know we're a lot of a lot of the Trump kind of uh, you know sort of philosophy here is that he's he's conducting a big he's producing a huge reality tv show and it's getting a lot of attention a lot of eyeballs and everybody's breathlessly reporting on every single you know minute detail and there's really not much that's happening uh you know that sort of relates to this whole reality show side of it so you know we're not really making any progress in north korea nobody thinks that we are we haven't gotten anything for it but look how much time we've spent on it how much time he's spent on it and all the coverage that's you know been you know that we've watched unfold over a course of about a year and a half or two years so it's it's you know it's all part of a, a big show and we're kind of sucked into it for ratings i think Okay. So a couple more foreign policy items I want to get your, your take on here. Uh, Iran nuclear deal. He, he pulled us out of that. How, how does that sit? I don't actually think it's changed very much. Um, you know, I, I think Iran is still basically uh, following a, 
the, the, the basic compliance that they had originally agreed to, I think, again, that's one of those things that was done for show. It was done based on, you know, sort of rhetoric that he threw around at his rallies. You know, he likes to call any deal that he wasn't involved in the worst deal in history. And, uh, you know, so, so he just kind of followed through on that threat to pull out of the Iran deal. But I don't know that that's changed uh, Iran's behavior in in any fashion. I mean, they're still in the deal with a lot of other European nations, and I think they're trying to comply with it. So, Jeff, uh, two questions here. Was the Iran deal to begin with a bad deal, and is pulling out of it better or worse? Well, <clears throat> again, the, the motivation for, for this policy was he wasn't a party to the first deal, and a guy named Obama was, and so therefore it was bad. Um, he's reinstated sanctions that would come from the deal had Iran uh, taken steps towards um, uh, building a nuclear weapon. Uh, they are taking those steps. He's re reasserted sanctions. Um, as Dave said, it's basically going along in the same ways as the deal. It just uh, is without the construct of the deal. And there's no there's no real enforcement mechanism if they go further. So, you know, now we have sanctions. Um, but what what do we do if they take the next step? Uh, even with these sanctions, do we start dropping bombs on Tehran? Do we? I mean, <laughs> if, if if they start, uh, I don't, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but but real quick, if they start moving too far away from. Uh, the sanctions that the U.S. has put on them that aren't part of the deal, what what is the response? I don't think that uh, the president does anything. Uh, I, I think he the one thing that we do know about him is he he doesn't like conflict in the Middle East. I mean, he you know he he for for many reasons that I think some people see nefarious intention. You know, he pulled out of Syria and, and you know, sort of ceded that ground to Turkey. Uh, but, but clearly he has an instinct for, for not wanting to be embroiled in things like, you know, wars in the Middle East. And so uh, I think that's the one thing that, you know, we sort of know about Trump. And, and my guess is that uh, there wouldn't be much effect. In the meantime, you know, there, you know, there are, there are sanctions in place and uh, the, Iran is still in the deal with other countries. And so my guess is it doesn't really change anything. So let's, let's take Syria now that you bring that up. I think the method of pulling out of Syria, many can argue might not have been the best way to do it, right? So, so let's, Fast forward past how he did it, how quickly he pulled the troops out. Is the U.S. pulling out of Syria a good thing? Well, I, I don't. Th I'm one of the Republicans that that will criticize the president on this because I, I think you have to look around to say who who benefits from any of these moves, and the people who benefit are, uh, you know, are the the you know Erdogan in Turkey, uh, who has bad intentions for that region and Putin who wants more influence uh, in the Middle East and Syria is his way to get it uh, and Iran. Uh, so, the, I mean, I think when the winners are Iran, Syria and Russia, uh, it's probably a bad idea. Okay. Uh, are there any other really monumental wins in the foreign policy sphere for the Trump administration that, that you're seeing, Dave? 
No, I, I mean, that's about it. You know, we got to see how the whole trade thing resolves. Uh, I'm not a fan of the, of the trade policy of this president. Um, I do think that, you know, a lot of people are, are sort of giving him the benefit of the doubt, maybe, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly. We're, we're going to see how it plays out, but, um, I don't think there are any other, well, I, I, I guess we should say, you know, he did kill the leader of ISIS, the, 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 the military did. Uh, he gave the order, and so he should get credit for that. And in general, ISIS has, um, you know, been pretty roundly uh, defeated uh, during the course of this administration. It was already, with a policy that was already underway uh, during the Obama administration. So, you know, I'm not sure how much credit the president should get for that. But uh, the fact is, ISIS has been, you know, largely uh decimated. There's not much there. Um, we can, we can argue whether or not this new move, <clears throat> excuse me, this new move now, uh, pulling troops out of Syria, you know, will embolden ISIS to kind of make a return. Uh, but the, but the fact is that a lot has gotten done, uh, credit to our military credit to our allies for doing it. So I think, uh, you know, you have to give, you have to give the Trump administration credit for, uh, for having an effective policy. So, so Jeff, let's get your take on some of these uh, trade negotiations. The trade war with China, yeah, is that is that helping things move along in some way, and and if not, how is it hurting the general population of of this country? Well, um, so the the Chinese were smart um, because when Trump threatened to increase tariffs, they said, "Here's what we're going to do: we're going to focus our retaliatory tariffs." on um, agricultural products. And they knew that they would hit Trump in his political base by attacking agricultural products in addition to steel and, and, and some of the industrial products um, that, that go um, back and forth. And what it's, it's really had a crippling effect on pork producers and soybean farmers and, and corn growers uh, throughout the entire Midwest. Um, China literally shut off their market uh, to to our products, and it caused uh, so much pain that the that the Trump administration has pumped uh, Dave is it almost forty billion dollars into bailout payments for farmers in the last two and a half years. I think it's getting close to that. I, I know Iowa is is at about seven hundred sixty million in direct payments, in addition to the other farm programs. That's just basically uh, China trade war bailout payments. And do either of you guys know where in the government budget those payments are, are being pulled out of? Oh, sure. What are, what the are we Federal Reserve, we're borrowing that? the money, ironically, from the Chinese to pay the farmers because they can't sell their grain or their pork to the Chinese. It's really quite ironic and delicious and terrible all at the same time. So, uh, no, the trade war um, has had a devastating effect on agriculture um, and a lot of a lot of people in the and by the way, manufacturers like John Deere and others uh, are laying off workers because they can't sell tractors and combines and, and equipment at the rate they were before the trade war started. So it is having a negative economic effect. Um, and here's the crazy part about it. Uh, because Trump does not 
uh, believe in having allies, uh, which we just talked about in the earlier segment, uh, he he chose not to reach out to Canada and Brazil and say, hey, Canada and Brazil, you guys have farmers. Your farmers are getting screwed by China, just like the American farmer. Why don't we all three go together at China? And we're going to say to China, you can't break us apart. You can't pick us apart. And we're not going to take your predatory behavior anymore. And and Trump, of course, uh, ignored this advice. It was given to him. Uh, he he doesn't trust Canada. He he. I don't even know if he has a relationship with Brazil. Well, it's not really been in the news. Uh, but he chose to go it alone. And because he chose to go it alone, it was very easy for the Chinese to start buying wheat from Canada corn and soybeans and pork from Brazil. And so while the U.S. agricultural uh, establishment has been decimated by this trade war, Brazilian farmers and Canadian farmers are making out like bandits. It's insane. So, Dave, from your side, if, if this trade war is hitting his base the hardest, are they aware of where that is coming from? Or is this a thing where they will still support him despite the pain coming towards them? Uh, they will still support him despite the pain coming towards them. They've accepted the premise that China is a bad actor. They understand that China's been sticking it to us for decades. Uh, specifically in Iowa, they steal our seed technology right out of the ground. Uh, I've talked to a, a a farmer who, who um, is in seed development, who was in China working on uh, some deals and, and literally found his own uh, hybrid growing in China. I mean, this is something they've been doing for a long time. Everybody knows that they're doing it. And so, you know, farmers are, are, are I think they're taking the pain uh, and they've got their fingers crossed. I'm not sure uh, if it's wise to have their fingers crossed on this, but um, you know, there, there are constant announcements coming out now that we you know a deal is imminent. The Chinese basically want a removal of the tariffs as part of phase one. Uh, uh, and, and Trump appears to not be willing to do that, but I, I think they, you know, they are hopeful that something is going to happen. In the meantime, uh, you know, we have seen so so in you know we the the Chinese market started to go away as soon as he puts on the tariffs. Uh, the share of uh, of soybeans that they're buying from Brazil went way up. The, the portion of soybeans they're buying from the United States went way down. Uh, that's what was hurting the farmers. And so we see these payments being made uh, to try to compensate for it. But in the last couple of months, we've actually seen uh, some of it come back. I mean, the trend lines basically reversed over the last month or so, and China is buying a little bit more. Uh, it's not anywhere close to where it was. These markets were very hard to develop. It took a couple of decades to do it. So there, there is real pain out there. But, um, you know, uh, protein is important. China, you know, China's a huge country. They've got to feed a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think that 
I think that the the agricultural community is is optimistic and hopeful, and they they you know we read in the New York Times about once a month that uh, farmers are just about to turn on the president, and yet we're we're not seeing it in the polling, we're not seeing it uh, you know from the commodity groups where where they do go after this president, and where you do see Republicans going after this president with respect to agriculture is usually related to the EPA. And to um, you know the waivers that they've issued for oil refineries, which is uh, you know which kind of hurts our our ethanol production, and they have uh, not been shy about criticizing the president on those terms, but they have uh, they have held back criticism. Uh, for the most part, on trade, I think these agricultural groups um, are are hopeful that something will happen, and if nothing else, they're you know they're they're glad to see somebody stand up to China and actually try to get something done. Uh, I I do. Uh, you know, I'm a free trader. I think that we should not be having these tariffs. But at the same time, uh, Jeff's, Jeff's, I think, uh, onto a point we should have been more collaborative with our allies uh, to uh, to go to China together. That's I, I don't think that's the way Trump likes to operate. Um, but I I think that uh, you know we're not we're not seeing any movement away from Trump among uh, rural Americans and uh, the agricultural community. So, as a for instance, if the if the rural Americans stick with him, we stick in this trade war, and it turns out, I'm being a little hypothetical, but let's say it turns out that the the Chinese agree to some of these these terms when it comes to to you know not infringing on technology. Uh, my question for Jeff is: Does the trade war turn out to be a win for Trump if the long term effects are that China becomes a better trading partner? Well, yeah, if China becomes a better trading partner, of course it does. Um, but the interesting thing is, um, you, you know, you got to listen to the, the Trump rhetoric and hyperbole recently. Uh, within the last two weeks, he said a couple times, and this might even make Dave nervous, uh, he said a couple times, uh, I don't really want to deal with China as much as they do. They want this deal badly. Uh, I'd just soon not have a deal, but you know, I'm still talking to them. That, of course, is complete and total bullshit. And what what Trump fails to recognize is that uh, President Xi uh, doesn't have a re-election campaign, doesn't have term limits. Uh, he can wait this out, and he can wait Trump out, um, and so. Trump is nearing the point where he really, really needs to to put some points on the board for his campaign next year. And Xi has all the time in the world. Like they have a view uh, that is thousands of years long, not not 11 months. And so I just think Trump Trump is playing checkers and the Chinese are playing chess. And if we had some allies, we would uh, we would have a better um better posture here. So I'd like to shift a little bit more to domestic policy at this point, where where most Americans see uh, a greater effect. Let's take a look at at the um, the tax bill that that Trump got in. Jeff, uh, does that tax bill help average Americans more than it helps, say, the wealthy or the corporations? Uh, No. Not even close. Um, and it wasn't intended to. Um, look, the it, it, anytime you have a, a where you're going to cut all the rates, uh, the people who 
pay the most tax and make the most money are going to benefit the most. That's that's just kind of simple math. I think what's what's was really devastating about the Trump tax plan, and by the way, it's one point five trillion dollars. So it it's a it's a very big, significant. Uh, cut in the corporate income tax rate. I think it went from 35 to 21. Um, the idea was that all these corporations were going to invest in capital expenditures and increase wages for their workers. Um, what really happened, at cutting that corporate tax rate by 14%, uh, what we saw in uh, 2018 was that uh, Corporate buybacks of stock, where the, where a company would buy back its own stock or dividends, uh, increased about twenty eight percent. So they got a fourteen percent tax cut. They they paid out twenty eight percent more in in either dividends or or stock buybacks, um, and they didn't really invest that much into capital expenditures outside of you know the big four or five companies, Google and Facebook, who were building data farms and all that sort of thing, uh, largely driven by their own growth, uh, not not necessarily by a tax stimulus. And so what, what we're going to end up with is uh, a, a radically large increase in the annual deficit. The, the debt has already gone. I think when Trump started, it was at 18 trillion, we're at 22 or 23 trillion now. We're up 5 trillion. And this is at a time where Trump tells us for the last three years, we've had the best economy, the greatest American economy in the history of the earth. Why, why on earth, with the greatest economy ever, would our debt grow by $5 trillion? I, like, I was always under the impression that uh, the Reagan tax cuts, the uh, the amount of growth in the economy was going to more than pay for the cost of the Treasury of the tax cuts. So, Dave, maybe you can explain to me how uh, how our deficit has gone up, or our national debt's gone up five trillion dollars in what Donald Trump says is the three greatest years of American econ economic history. Um, uh, how does this how does this math not work? And and Dave, before you answer this question, because I do want to hear your answer, I want to ask you for both your answer and the standard Republican answer on this one, because I have a feeling they don't uh, diverge we, too much we might on this subject. Look, look oh, I don't both. know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an original Tea Partier here on on debt and deficits, and I uh, I have a lot of criticism for Republicans who, when they take power, uh, basically forget all of their uh, anti-government spending uh, philosophy and, uh, you know, and, and continue with the debt. I mean, let, let's face it. But, but uh, Dave, oh, oh. remember, uh, Mitch McConnell said in 2017, I'm totally convinced this is a revenue neutral bill. Yeah, it's uh, probably not a revenue neutral bill, uh, Jeff, and and it's probably not the first time we've heard a politician say something that uh, that didn't bear out to be true. Now, look, uh, Barack Obama had eight years, uh, ran up the debt by I think over eight trillion dollars, almost ten trillion dollars. Republicans were bitching about it constantly. It spawned the birth of the Tea Party in 2009 and 2010. Uh, Democrats ended up losing, I don't know how many legislative chambers, over a thousand 
uh, individual state legislators. They lost control of the House, the Senate, um, and it was because Americans were motivated to punish uh, a president that they thought were, was spending too much money and deficits that were out of control. <laughs> and that was the net effect. Now, now look, okay, I mean, okay. here, here, here did, we did are. The re, here, did the recession have anything to do with that, Dave? The, uh, for the, well, the Bush the recession? recession? The, the recession had did something to do with Did the Bush recession have anything to do with the amount of spending that was necessary in 2009 and 10 and 11? Well, well sure, because, uh, you know, the, and the, you also had uh, – uh, the stimulus that was passed, which was almost a trillion dollars of government spending, which, by oh, the way, wasn't was used to really do anything I bet that, that auto bailout effective. was a big well, – was that auto bailout a big part of that, Dave? <laughs> no, that was uh, one part of it, but it wasn't the whole part Do you part think that was that. a huge contributor to the, to the increasing debt and deficit? No, I think that the spending over the Obama years in general and the $8 trillion or more that was added to the debt uh, gave birth to a uh, a whole political movement that uh, Republicans benefited from, that ultimately Trump benefited from. Now my point is, uh, we need to we need to be doing things that are, is con consistent with the rhetoric that we used in 2010 and 12 and 14 uh, and 16 to win elections, which is that we should believe in smaller government, we should believe in lower taxes and less spending, and we should unleash the you know the animal spirits of the economy uh, and and. Do it by basically controlling the the size and scope of government. I think that the tax bill uh, should have been targeted more towards the middle class. I do like corporate tax cuts when uh, when you can get rid of loopholes. We didn't do enough of that. I think the there's a big problem with uh, you know how these tax bills get negotiated in in secret with uh, you know corporate lobbyists making sure that uh, everybody gets the you know their little provisions into the into the tax bill and the loopholes that they that they that they use but um, I I believe in a free market economy where you have lower taxes and less government spending and free markets and an opportunity for you know the American ingenuity and productivity to win uh, not only uh, in our own country for our workers but around the world as we compete with others for um, you know for the share of the global economy that's what I believe so so Dave did did Trump start his presidency with a global recession? Trump did not start with with a global recession. No. Oh, he didn't. No. He didn't. <laughs> but but the growth has uh, definitely been improved since he's been president, and you can attribute no, that to no, a lot of things. No, yes, it is. No, yes, it is. It has his, not. His rate of growth month over month has been higher than the GDP? Obama. Uh, no, the rate of growth. I don't it, know what you're talking about. The GDP or what? Some other rate of growth. The GDP. Yes. You think it's been higher under it, Trump than the last year of Obama? Not the last year, the eight years oh, of Obama. Oh, aggregated. the average, which includes yes. the recession that he inherited from Bush. <laughs> I th okay, I think the, it was the last two or three years that were fairly similar to where we. Of course, been and by the way, by the way, the auto bailout, which I can't believe Dave didn't jump on, but the auto bailout cost half as much as the Chinese tariff bailout to farmers. Half as much. And it was repaid by the auto companies. And there is no provision that farmers have to repay the, the, the billions of dollars that they got because Trump shut off the Chinese market to them. I'm not here, so, I'm not here arguing with you about the auto bailout. 
I want, I want to go backwards for, for one second. Uh, I want to go backwards for one second. Dave, when you talked about how you would like to have seen it uh, affect the middle class more, referring to the tax bill, can you give me a little bit more clarity on A, how it, you think it affected the middle class, and B, how you think it should have affected the middle class, so that I think our listeners can get a better sense of what this bill really did? Well, I mean, look, um, most middle class families did receive some slight benefit from the tax cuts. Um, the problem, of course, is that, uh, you know, when most of the people paying the highest amount of taxes are in that higher income group over one hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars a year. They're going to get the biggest benefit when you reduce rates. So, uh, if you're in a high income category and you got your rate dropped from thirty nine to you know to thirty four and a half percent, and you make five hundred thousand dollars a year, you're going to see a huge benefit. And someone in the middle class who's paying a much lower rate. Uh, and only gets a point or two, uh, they're not going to see as much. So what you know, what we should have done is probably uh, you know targeted the the actual rate cuts uh, to incomes between you know forty thousand per household up to two hundred thousand per household, and over that, uh, don't change the rates. The, the the wealthy can afford to pay uh, higher rates of taxes and should. I think most people, even most Republicans, agree that they're you know we we, we have a progressive income tax rate. Uh, it's it's effective and and uh, you know to to cut taxes kind of across the board unless you go to something like a consumption tax uh, typically benefits the wealthy the most unless you uh, wall them off from from the cuts and we didn't do that. So two two follow up questions here uh, and and Jeff jump in if if these make sense for you. Uh, was there a measurable segment of the middle class who actually ended up paying a higher tax after the bill passed than before. And, 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 you know, uh, I know I'm one of them. Uh, and, and follow up to that. Did the IRS collect measurably more in income tax for, for 2018 than 2017? No, we collected less. We collected less in revenue. That that's the problem. That's why the deficits are going so so wild. Dave. Well, I mean, I believe in the government collecting less in revenue and then spending less uh, in a commensurate way because I don't think that we want to have a government that's taking half of all of Americans' earnings. Um, but this you know, but this government is collecting less and spending more. I know that's and what's it, going on right now, right? Which is which is why I tend to break with some of my Republican colleagues. Uh, I'm sort of of the original uh, conservative mind that we should that government should do, uh, you know, the least it needs to do to keep us safe, to keep our kids educated, and to you know to to protect uh, our communities and and you know I, I just I'm not one who thinks that the government should constantly be growing. Well, and to get back to your first question, Lou, I don't have the data on how many people actually paid more in taxes. I know that is a real number. It's a very um, small number. It's a but here, like, but here, very here's, small number of here's where it affects everybody who is a middle income wage earner, Dave, and that is wages did not increase because of this tax cut. 
Wages basically are at the same level of inflation, uh, if not lagging slightly behind inflation, after the tax cuts. And all we heard before these tax cuts were passed is watch what's going to happen to wages. Corporations are going to have more money in their pocket. We're going to have we're going to cut these rates 14 percent. Look at all the money the corporations are going to have. They're going to pay their workers more. Just didn't materialize at all. Is is there some similarity here with trickle down economics, which has, has sort of proven not to be the most effective? It is trickle down economics. It's just Trump doesn't ever use anybody else's name for anything. He has to rebrand it and he has to put Trump on it. Um, but that's what it is. Well, let's let let's let Elizabeth Warren solve all of this by telling companies what they have to pay people, and um, so that's so Dave's way of America. saying I can't defend Trump anymore. So I'm going to just go on the attack. It's an it's so, a year, so we're, years old. We're we're not going to leave uh, Warren or, or Sanders off off the chopping block oh, here. Good. But good, let's tee it up. Give me something. Before, so all right, we'll we'll switch off Trump a little bit here. I, I think one of the points we want to get to is what people have accomplished versus what they want to tell us they've accomplished. So, uh, Jeff, we'll let you lead this one off. Uh, let's let's look at the leading Democrats. Democrats. What are the big accomplishments from let's start with Biden, then we'll take a look at Warren and Sanders. Well, um, you know, one of the things that uh, Vice President Biden is talking a lot about right now is uh, the Violence Against Women Pre Act. President Biden? Did you say President Biden? I thought I yeah, said Vice did. President <laughs> Biden. I'm pretty sure he said President <laughs> Biden. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, carry on. Uh, so the Violence Against Women Act, uh, he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time. Um, you know, I think he, he takes credit for... Um, uh, a number of uh, foreign policy successes. Um, uh, obviously, he was um, put in charge of, of kind of all the cancer research uh, in the Obama administration um, and uh, led to significant increases in investment in cancer research and medical research generally. Um, I, I think one of the things that his service as vice president, um, you know, you can point to is uh, Obama was relatively inexperienced um, in Washington, and he was a steadying hand in that administration um, that came in with a lot of energy and enthusiasm and didn't really have uh, a high regard for the way things worked in in Washington. And Biden sort of served as a bridge between kind of the hopes and ideals that, that Obama brought with the reality of dealing with the Senate and 60 votes to get something done and and uh, and the House of Representatives. I have two, two follow ups here before I want to get Dave's take on Biden. One is uh, the Violence Against Women Act was 1990. So does Biden still get to ride that wave, being that it was so long ago? And part two, uh, while he was a steadying hand and a bit of experience for Obama, does does that sort of being a political insider make him uh, a good candidate for, for president? If, if he's sort of just the, the guy who's good at guiding the guy. So so so, Jeff, let, let's get your take on those. And then and then I want to hear what Dave has to say about Biden. Uh, on on which part about Biden? 
so does him being a steadying hand for Obama give him, you know, some some credibility as a potential president? Uh, and and does the fact that the Violence Against Women Act was 1990, does he still get to ride that wave? Well, uh, so let me take the second question first. Um, the Violence Against Women Act is relevant now because it's up for reauthorization and it's it's being used as a political football uh, right now in the United States Senate. So that that's why I started with that and that's why it's topical. Um, and we can talk about kind of what the status of that is. But but so that's that's why a bill that started in 1990 is still relevant today. The second thing is, uh, obviously, um, having experience as vice president is very helpful in preparing you for for the job. It is um, the hardest job in the world. Uh, you, you, it has incredible pressure. Um, and I remember uh, Obama, among other presidents, saying, uh, you know, that the thing most people don't often think about when it comes to the job of the president is that every easy decision gets handled by someone below them and only the most intractable, difficult, um, rock and hard place kinds of decisions makes it to the president's desk. And so that's what they have to deal with every day. And if you're vice president, you see those choices uh, that a president has to make and it prepares you. Okay, so uh, Dave, let's let's get your your take on Biden. Well, yeah. What, what has he accomplished, uh, or what has he not accomplished that he probably should have in the forty-seven years he's been in politics? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I, I've always been um, impressed with uh, Senator Biden, then Vice President Biden, just in his ability to connect with people. I think his greatest strength is that he is a maybe the most empathetic. Uh, political figure we've ever seen, based on his life story and and uh, you know some of the tragedy that that he's faced in his family. But I think the you know the 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 issue really here is what what conditions existed in the country that created the the opportunity for Trump to win the presidency, um, and the, I think the conditions are that people are. Uh, you know, fed up with Washington, don't trust their government, um, and having 48 or whatever years of political experience is a liability, uh, not a strength. If you uh, if you understand why uh, Donald Trump was able to defeat Hillary Clinton, it has to do with the fact that she was a Washington insider. There is nobody more, nobody can compete with Joe Biden on being the biggest Washington insider. He has chaired several important Senate committees. He was vice president for eight years. He's, he was in the Senate for 30, whatever, 30 six years, I think, or something like that before that, uh, you know, his entire life has been, uh, you know, in Washington, he's run for president. This is the third, this is the third time he's run for president. Um, he, he hasn't clearly hasn't gotten any better at it. Um, and so I, I, I mean, I, I don't. First of all, I don't see him winning the Democratic nomination because I think he's out of step with where the Democratic Party wants to go. Um, and I do think that uh, you know de Democrats are, I think, better at choosing a newer generation to take over from the old generation. And he's, uh, you know, at 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 seventy seven or eight years old. I, I just I don't see how he's going to have, uh, you know, the energy to to pull this nomination through. Okay, so. Uh I want to start to wrap us up, but I don't want to leave Sanders and Warren off the chopping block. So uh, 
let's just get into it quickly, and, and we'll pick this up in a future episode. Jeff, let's take Warren uh, as, as our first example. What are the uh, two biggest accomplishments in her political career that are relevant to her run for president? Well, I, th- I think her work as a consumer advocate uh, stands out a- above anything else, um, uh, e- even her service in the Senate. Uh, obviously, she's been a strong advocate for um, individuals over corporations, but it was really her work in the Obama administration uh, as an advocate for uh, consumers um, that really got her the most notoriety and attention and um, made her the enemy of of, um, boardrooms and CEOs across the country. Dave, uh, what has she not accomplished that you think makes her not (laughs) a good candidate? I mean, I think her her plans are crazy. I think uh, Medicare for all is a huge mistake, not only uh, economically but in, in electorally. Uh, it has uh, it, it's clear now that not only does the country not want her brand of Medicare for all, the Democratic Party doesn't appear to want it either. Uh, I think she has spent this wealth tax about 10 different ways. The idea that we're going to give free college tuition to Jeff's kids or my kids or the kids of you know millionaires and billionaires around the country is crazy. Uh, it's going to kill our private colleges all over the country, which in many cases are sort of the, you know, the lifeblood of a lot of uh, small and medium-sized communities in this country, uh, putting putting them in competition with free tuition at public universities is just a terrible idea. I mean, you'd have to give me about three hours to go through all of the bad ideas that Elizabeth Warren is bringing to the table. And uh, I, and I just politically, I think she's peaked too soon. She took too long to talk about how she was going to pay for her health care plan. And I think what you're seeing now is the, you know, the, the political gravity starting to take effect on her campaign, which is why she's, she's dropped in most of the national polls. And she's, she's dropped in, uh, in some of the early state polls that we seen, especially the uh, the Iowa poll where Pete Buttigieg had a huge surge in the last month or two uh, at her expense. So a uh, quick follow up for you, Dave, regardless of those uh, ideas of hers being bad ideas, as far as you're concerned, uh, let's say half the country thinks they're brilliant ideas. Are they accomplishable in today's political landscape or do they go too far? They go too far and they're completely not accomplishable. Uh, you know, this whole idea of big structural change, uh, you, you know, you'd have to basically empty out Congress and elect an entire, uh, you know, democratic socialist, uh, you know, block into Congress to get anything done. There are still, uh, you know, there are a bunch of uh, uh, Democrats in Congress who are sitting in districts that Trump won that would never go along with any of these policies that she's talking about or that Bernie Sanders is talking about. I mean, it would require a, a huge ideological realignment in this country. That's not, it's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, she's, I think it's a, you know, in the short term, it's a smart way 
to for her to have really you know kind of captured the imagination of the super progressives that exist on Twitter and that dominate some of the conversation in the Democratic Party primary process. Moderates tend to be uh, a little quieter; they're not as as prominent you know in social media, uh, and they don't have the same kind of voice in our politics. But um, it's you know, most of her ideas, I think, are political killers for the general election. So speaking of progressives on on Twitter and social Democrats, that leaves us with Bernie, uh, who was criticized in the in the 2016 campaign as having these great ideas, but not really accomplishing anything in his in his long career. Jeff, uh, has he accomplished a lot or does he just talk about a lot of things? I, I think Sanders biggest accomplishment is he has moved the Democratic debate in, in this nomination, he has uh, made Medicare for all um, something that five or six candidates not only talk about, but embrace. Um, and he has has done the same thing on free college and a few other issues. I, I think that's probably his greatest legacy uh, at this time. Okay. Dave, uh, I think is greatest, he a viable candidate? His greatest accomplishment uh, in my mind is uh, doing what Jeff says and moving the debate to such a place that it will make almost any Democrat unelectable in a general election. So I think he, he's accomplished pushing the Democratic Party far enough to the left that Trump uh, has a much better chance at being reelected than he would have had Bernie and Elizabeth Warren not uh, captured the imagination of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I I, uh, I think I have to agree with you on that one. Uh, as, as much as uh, you know, some of their ideas have have are are, are interesting. I, I think we have gone a little too far to the left, uh, but I think that's where we're going to wrap things up here. One of the main points, uh, and and Jeff and Dave, if you want to chime in a last a last comment on this, I think that I want to get to here is while we may not like the candidates' personalities or the president's personality. Let's take a look at what they have or have not accomplished so that we can figure out if they can if they can help this country move forward. So do you guys have a, a last uh, very short sentence on that before we uh, tail out of here? I mean, I'll, I'll start first by saying that I, I, I think regardless of whether you think Trump deserves credit for the economy that we the strong economy that we have right now, he clearly is benefiting in many ways from a good economy. And, uh, you know, unless things turn south in terms of growth, like really south uh, over the next couple of quarters, it, 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 I, I think that uh, People, voters who are not paying as close attention as those of us who, you know, talk on podcasts or, or read uh, Twitter all day or, or, you know, Politico, uh, you know, give him some credit for having guided the, the economy in a way that is uh, beneficial to them. Okay. Jeff, closing statement. Well, I think if, if you're a stockholder, uh, you, you like this economy. If you're a wage earner, uh, this is pretty much uh, status quo. And I think that's going to be the challenge for the Democrats here is to remind people that if you earn a wage, you're paying uh, more in taxes than, than people that live off of investment income, uh, that if you earn a wage, you're paying more as a percentage of your income than corporations today in America. Uh, and if you just uh, want to watch the stock market and, and uh, you have a, you're clipping coupons, this, this has been a pretty good couple years. But other than that, um, we've got a lot of work to do and we got to make some changes. 
Okay. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Jeff, Dave, I want to thank you guys for joining me. Hopefully we've been able to motivate you a little bit. And I'll ask you this. Do you have a friend or family member that needs some motivation? And I don't mean motivation to see things your way, but motivation just to be involved and make informed decisions. So what the hell are you waiting for? Get your ass in gear, because if the people don't vote, the politicians can do whatever they want. Give us your thoughts on Twitter at CentristPod. Thanks for joining us. As always, please subscribe and share with your best friend or your worst enemy. 